be seated. I'm going to grab my podium. Well, good morning. So good to see you and so good to be with you, those of you that are online with us this morning. Grateful that you are able to uh, join with us to gather together, um, and uh, we look forward to the day when we will um, be able to uh, be together in, in a, a more, a larger sense, um, but in the meantime, as we wait for uh, that perfect timing and um, just kind of patiently wait for that, uh, we're grateful for the gift of technology, the opportunity to be together, uh, for to be able to um, come into your living rooms and uh, worship with you, at least in spirit. Last weekend, we wrapped up our study in the book of Ephesians, and uh, we are going to begin a new sermon series here in just a few weeks, but we are, feel called and compelled to take time to deal with the present cultural moment that our nation is in. I don't think I have to inform you that we have seen now some 12 days of protesting and grieving and heartbreak um, in our country, and so many things seem to be going wrong, seem to be challenged in our nation. You know, when Paul went into a city, he went straight to the synagogue. He went straight to the place where the city would gather because he understood that he needed to bring to bear God's word and the gospel to the culture and to challenge the culture and to bring about change and ultimately to present the gospel in light of what that city was dealing with. All of our letters from him, he deals with challenges and those challenges are rooted in the challenges of the culture that he was speaking to. And so we understand that our calling is to do the same, to preach the gospel and apply the gospel to the context of the culture that we are currently living in. You know, the church is the ministry of God. It is the gift of God. It is the manifold wisdom of God. We talked about that in our study in Ephesians. And it is called to offer a prophetic voice, not an echoing voice of our sinful hearts and the desires of man, but a prophetic voice that calls us to look above the culture, to say, what must God have to say about this and see what God is doing and what he has done? So it is right that we talk about the situation that we find our country in today and the issue of race in America. You know, last week as we closed out the Ephesians study and we talked about this spiritual battle that we are in, not a battle against flesh and blood and the need to put on the armor of God and we blessed our seniors and we talked about the, the, the spiritual battle of our world. We are in a spiritual battle. But some of you might have rightly wondered last week, obviously, sort of when this first arose on the scene in our country and the flames started to burn in a sense, why we didn't speak to it outside of these walls. And I'll just share with you just personally here, I just felt like rushing to speak would have been unwise for me to, to rush into that without pondering and considering what it is that God had to say. And also, I didn't want to diminish the celebration of our seniors who had been taken and robbed of so many things, and so we had already planned that. Now, today, some of you probably are wondering, or really glad that I didn't address that last week, and you're wondering, does he really have to talk about that in church today? This illustrates, honestly, perhaps the problem we have in our nation. As the church, we have for too long put off the uncomfortable not wanting to address the elephant in the room. It's been easier to just try and ignore or sweep it away. 
ask ourselves this question we, we, we must ask. Why would teaching and preaching against the sin of racism ever be questioned? Why would it be a problem for the church to acknowledge that racism is sin? We can talk about every other sin that God's word speaks to, but when it comes to that sin, we get uncomfortable and sometimes it gets questioned. Isn't that an indictment of where we are in and of itself? This is the only sin that I know of that so many people, not just in our country, but around the world, have tried for centuries to convince us is not real. I don't know of any other sin that is so unacknowledged or tried to diminish. And perhaps this is one reason why we're still dealing with it in 2020. Had the church not abdicated its position to offer the prophetic voice when Dr. King was pleading with the church to do so in his letters from a Birmingham jail, perhaps we might have a different country today. We might have a greater degree of unity. But, alas, that is not where we find ourselves, and so it's right that we deal with the issue today. And we know that it is something that we have to deal with because we didn't reach this point in our nation outside of these comforting walls, outside of even the comfort of our local community in some senses. There is problems erupting everywhere, real challenges. Those things don't happen if this isn't an issue. You know, this past week I was able to gather with other pastors and thousands of residents of our county to pray for justice and to pray for an end to racism. And it was beautiful. But the fact that thousands upon thousands of people felt compelled and called to come together and pray shows how desperate we are for God to move in this, how much we need him to move. Finally, as a final preface, I want to offer you this. Some of you, especially online, don't know me as well. And you may feel uncomfortable with this issue being addressed. Others will say yes and amen. And I just ask in both situations that you remember, for six years, we have preached the gospel, loved you well, tried to feed you God's word. We boast in nothing but the cross. And I pray that you'll remember the character that we have displayed as pastors who have tried to love you. I can tell you the most painful thing for a pastor is people who love you and appreciate you up until you disappoint them with a single word. That is not my aim. I can tell you that I have wrestled with God over these issues for quite some time. For most of my life, I thought that racism couldn't be a problem because I didn't understand it. And I didn't feel in any way any negative or hurtful thoughts against black people, my black friends and neighbors. I didn't know, honestly, I did not know anyone that did. It never, if they did, they had never expressed it to me. I saw racism as something of the past. But over the last few years, prior to this present moment, thankfully I had friends that came around me and helped me see some of the things that were going on in our nation and our world. And I realized that was wrong. 
Just because we don't know and don't see, understand it, we don't maybe feel it around us or sometimes in our own hearts doesn't mean that it isn't a real problem. One of the reasons we don't mind when God's word comes to us and says, thou shalt not kill, is because that sin doesn't get close to home for us. When God's word does what only it can do as the double-edged sword that is sharp enough to separate marrow from joint and get to the heart and rebukes us and corrects us, let me just tell you what my tendency is to get defensive, to close that book up and say, no, I do not like that feeling. I don't want to hear from that. Here is what we should do. We should say, as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Make me clean. That has been my prayer as I've studied this issue, studied God's word and tried to prepare even this morning to speak. But over the last number of years, as God has opened my heart and mind to understand this issue more fully, and I do not claim in any way to be an expert, but I believe I see God's word more clearly because of that. And only God can do that. Only God can make us clean. Only God can bring that conviction. So rather than getting uncomfortable and retreating away from this cultural moment, I pray that we as a church would press in and let God do what he promises us he will do, that he will cleanse us of any stain of sin and make us a more beautiful reflection of who he is to our world. Again, we don't elevate ourselves in any way. But this message, this is delivered through prayer and in love, with tenderness, and with conviction of the Holy Spirit. Again, the church is called to offer a prophetic voice in our culture, and it's time that this body of Christ root out any sin of racism in our hearts. And where it doesn't exist in our hearts, let us go to work to find it where it does. As Dr. King said, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. The calling of the church is to root that out. So, what is this sin that we are dealing with? James chapter 2, as Pastor Kyle read it for us this morning, illustrates or highlights the issue that we're dealing with today. First, in, James, in the very first verse, he addresses, My brothers... This is written, this letter, of course, is written to Christians, and James is illustrating the point, highlighting the, the fact that if we, we, we profess to have faith in Christ, that our lives should reflect that in everything that we do. This is where we get that faith without works is dead, and so there should be works that demonstrate the faith that we have, the hope we have in Christ. And so when he addresses my brothers, we remember that this is written to us as Christians, people who have put their faith in Christ and have been redeemed. Now, this is helpful for us because it, it clarifies the point. There is absolutely no place for partiality within the body of Christ. Of course, we would wish that there was no place for partiality anywhere in the world, but within the body of Christ, it is highlighted, emphasized, there is no place for it. As we heard very often Thursday night, as so well put, this demonstrates for us that this is not a skin issue. It is a sin issue. It's not about someone's color. It's the root of sin in men's heart. And in James, we see the sin issue manifests itself as a person of wealth is treated differently than someone who is poor, more preferentially, in fact, because of their wealth than the poor person. The sin is that two people, both created in the image of God, are treated differently. 
So he says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He then says, as he describes this sin and he explains what has happened, he says that we, when we do this, that making this distinction is evil. Making the distinction between the two, verse 4 Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He calls it what it is. The sin is evil to show partiality. Of course, here based on economic status. But how much more evil if this sin described on economic status, could this distinction be made if if the distinction is being made about two people created in the image of God? Not just their economic status, but who they are as God's creation. He created each in our mother's womb. He created us in his image and in all of our differences. As God looks, as we see the world in all of those distinctions, we make up the beautiful image of God. I've described this before, but when we look out into the world and we see all of the colors, we see what we don't get much here in Texas, but we long for those colorful leaves and the changing of the fall. And when we see all of those colors, what do we do? We marvel. Why not then when we see all of the colors of God's creation, people created in his image, do we not marvel and rejoice and say, look how beautiful God's creation is. Rather, we Treat it differently, we allow our sins, our hearts turn to evil. In verses 5 and 7, this is what he says, God, listen, my beloved brothers. This is about God. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Speaking back to Matthew 5, Jesus' sermon on the mount, which he has promised to those who love him. He elaborates on the foolishness. Why, church, would you make this distinction of uh, this economic status? Or if we take it further, even the, the distincting between people creating the image of God. Why would you do that when he's promised to bless those people? God has said, I bless the poor and you're making a distinction, making them less than. So when we look at racism... And we consider God's promises to those who are treated differently because of the color of their skin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here's what we can know, friends. God will comfort the mourners of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and many others for 400 years that have gone before us. God will one day satisfy the thirst and hunger of African Americans in this country who thirst for righteousness, who long for that day. And God will bless those who live as Jesus commands, even when they are hated. That's his promise to us. Why would we not rush into that? James says, why dishonor those whom God has said he will honor and bless? Why are we so willing to remain silent when God has said that he will not remain silent? Are we doing that simply because of fear of man? Fear of the sinfulness in our own hearts? Nothing we can do will stop God from fulfilling his promises to us and to his people. We will not stand in the way of that. It's foolishness to think we know better than our creator. That we know better than what God has to say. So we must stop and just acknowledge it is sin. It is wrong. 
God has promised, and I'm going to join with him to do all that I can do to be a part of this coming promise. We collectively should join with God to see these promises come true. In verse 8, James addresses, and he calls this, he uses the phrase, the royal law. He elevates Jesus' words. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James says that it's this royal law which is at stake that we must treat one another without partiality because we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, I'd invite you to just remember, when we hear those words, love your neighbor as yourself, I hope you might be thinking, how did Jesus define neighbor? What did, what did he use to describe the neighbor? He told the story of the good Samaritan. The Samaritan, by the way, and the Jews who Jesus was speaking to in that moment, telling this parable to, were racial enemies. They had deep hatred for one another because of the long history And so Jesus, using that, realizing what is going on in their hearts, says to the people who they would hate that they are your neighbor. Remember Ephesians 2. I know it's been many months for us. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of our flesh and made us one. That's what Jesus was doing when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. He was describing the neighbor. He was tearing down the walls that that, that existed between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. When he went to the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, he was tearing down those dividing walls, showing grace upon grace, equal to all people. Again, so clear that racism is not a skin issue. It's a sin issue. So... If we can finally, I hope, agree and see from God's word that racism is sin, sin that must be dealt with, sin that must be rooted out in our hearts, what are we to do? First, and I believe this is where our culture so much has missed the point. When we see sin, our response is not to try and immediately fix it, it is to grieve, for our hearts to be broken. In James 2, you have the poor and the wealthy person. Notice, James doesn't deal with all the reasons why the person is poor. He doesn't address the problem of what caused the man to be poor and use that as an excuse to say, well, he deserved to be treated differently because he made these distinctions or he made these decisions that led to him being in poverty. No, he says that it's sinful to look at this person who is different than you and to use your pride, perhaps your power, to treat them differently than you would treat the wealthy man. The sin is the judgment of the difference. The sin is presuming that you know better than they do. The sin is assuming that their problems might be rooted in their own sins. Sound like a friend of Job, by the way? The reason you've had all these problems, Job, is because there must be sin in your life. You lost everything because there was sin. That wasn't the case at all. God rejected that. If we're going to put an end to racism, we must acknowledge that it is sin. And then when we see sin, our first response should not be trying to get all of the facts. It should be simply to grieve. For our hearts to be broken that this is a reality. To grieve the hurt. You know, I might not have wronged you if we think about this further. But if you were wronged, 
I would grieve that you were wronged. It might not be my source of the cause, but let me offer it this way. When our soldiers go off to war and they die fighting for our freedoms and our protections, we know that we didn't personally kill them. They were killed by the enemy. And yet, what do we do when we see that evil, when we see the sinfulness of our world? We grieve the loss of life. Our hearts break for those families rightly. Why then can we not grieve the enemy of racism which has taken so many lives throughout our history? We might not have been personally complicit But we must, as Christian people who have received the mercy of God, be able to grieve with those who are hurting. When your child gets hurt, do you go and explain to them all the reasons they got hurt? Yes, sometimes I do. But I try, that's not the right answer. No, we don't try and tell them that all the other kids are hurting too, so I really don't care about your fears. We don't tell them that the reason they got hurt was because they did something dumb or this or that. No, because of our love for them, we run to them and we pick them up and we comfort them. We do that because we love them more than ourselves. Well, Jesus told us that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. He told us to consider our neighbor greater than ourselves. And here's what I know. We, I, have black friends who have been hurt. My responsibility is to grieve with them, to comfort them, to love them, not to try and explain it away. Be willing to grieve this sin. That is the first step to healing. We continue to deal with it because we have been so unwilling to acknowledge it and we won't acknowledge it and so we can't grieve it. Healing only happens when we grieve. I can tell you so many stories of individuals who haven't grieved death or loss in a healthy way and they're still dealing with that grief today. We have to talk it out. We have to acknowledge the loss. We have to tell ourselves and be told over and over again of God's promises I'll tell you that I just testify that I can speak about my mom. I can talk about her life. I can look forward with joy to the day where I will see her again and worship Jesus side by side. In many ways, the reason I can do that is because I grieved. I cried out to God. I dealt with it. I didn't suppress it. I talked to people. I got help. I spent time with my family. I let it out. I grieve. The sin of racism will not be healed in our country if we don't learn to grieve it first. And I fear that so many in our nation are just trying to explain away the issues, to deny it exists, or just not look at it before they grieve. Now, some will say, what about everything that we're experiencing? Is it really real? Do we know what we're seeing? Is this just manipulation of the media? Are there others behind the scenes orchestrating events that we don't understand? You won't hear me argue over that. I'm not naive enough to say that that's not possible. And I have no doubt that we'll see certain things because of whatever is happening that we don't always know more fully. But that doesn't remove the fact that racism is real and it must be repented of. Back to my mom. She died, or she had leukemia. But when she died, she died from a brain hemorrhage. That's what ultimately took her life physically. 
And looking back as we thought about those days just after, they could have given her some platelets or done a few things to maybe keep her body alive for just a few more days. And and I would have loved to have had just a couple more days with her. But barring God's intervention, she was not going to be long with us. The leukemia had done its work. I don't blame the medical professionals who helped her, even though there could have been something, they could have extended it for just a couple more days. I, have, I, don't, I don't look at all of the other issues. No, what really took my mom, leukemia was the real problem. It showed up in this other way. And I have zero doubt that there might be media and others who have an agenda. But when we lose sight of this being at its very basis a sin issue and turn it into a political football, we're playing directly into their hands, friends. We're doing exactly what they would like us to do. Do you want to know what shuts down any media or any other bias or any other puppeteer that might exist in the world immediately? The church walking across the street, picking up the phone and saying, I love you. I grieve with you. I am with you. I want to bless and encourage you. No one can stop that from happening. And no one can stop the movement of Christ and the gospel going out if we would move with that type of boldness. If we ask the question, how can I know and love you better than I have in the past? I don't watch, by the way, any TV news. It does not exist in my home. I follow a few news sources on Twitter. I listen to a couple podcasts every day that kind of interact with the daily news. The influence of media and others have very little on my life. You know what does? Conversations with real people. Sitting down and having a meal when we used to be able to have those more regularly. Picking up the phone, having a text message. My friend Bishop Curry, the father of one of my son's best friends, a black man, was heartbroken of the death of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, like so many others before him. My responsibility to him as his friend is to grieve with him. That's what I'm called to do, to be brokenhearted with him. Others might ask, well, why do we have to say that black lives matter? Can't we just say that all lives matter? Well, of course we know that all lives matter, but all lives in America have not endured 400 years of hardship that began with a slave trade. That's the reality of our nation. Consider, just, I want you to think about it. As we march for life, we believe in protecting the life of the unborn. I've participated in those types of marches. We rejoice when Planned Parenthood loses funding. Does this mean that we don't love babies who are born? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. We know that there is a unique threat to the unborn, and we raise our voices to say that we must stand with them. So when we say that black lives matter, we're acknowledging the fact that there are real problems of racism in our country and we're raising our voice. We're doing what God has called us to do to offer a prophetic witness to God's truth and what he has called us to be. Again, are there sinister groups of people who've tried to hijack that phrase who I'd have nothing to do with? I am sure there are. Just as there have been white supremacist groups who have hijacked the Bible and used it for evil as long as I've been alive. And I distance myself from them in the same way. We're not denying the value of any race or group when we stand up and express support and empathy for the oppressed. We are doing what God has called us to do, Psalm 82. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. God isn't impressed with our extravagance, friends. 
He wants justice to flow down like a river, Amos 5. Yes, all lives matter. But today, we must let those who would say otherwise that black lives don't matter, we have to stand with them and for them because it seems so often they've been forgotten. Finally, some might say, well, why must we protest? And I would just simply remind you very briefly that our nation was born out of protest. We are a protest. Our founding fathers took up arms against the oppressors in protest. They penned these great words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So we aren't really against protesting, are we? Yes, violence and crime, that is not protest. Those are two different things. They are violence and crime. And those, again, with evil intentions might try to hijack this event or that in order to make it look bad. But protesting in and of itself is not bad. I want you to think again, just as parents, imagine or remember, I think many of us might be able to think of these days, when your child was wronged at school, when they were hurt, you felt something was handled wrongly. I can tell you what happens because I've seen it. You march down to that school in protest and you have words, many words to say, to try and rally perhaps the whole town through We Are Melissa, if you can, to rally to say that my baby will not be hurt. We do that over some, not inconsequential, but how often some small things when we are dealing with life. Now imagine your babies have been hurt and scarred and mistreated for century upon century. What should we do? We should protest. And just as eager as we are to march and stand for life, we should be willing to stand up against the sin of racism. Not violently, as there's been violence against abortion clinics before. No, we oppose that and we call that evil just in the same way we call looting and rioting evil. But we can protest and we can stand against. Ultimately, in all these things, we love our neighbor. If my black friends are hurting, that hurt is not generated by a news story, I promise you. That hurt is sourced in some deep, long-lasting hurt. It's, it's sourced in helplessness. I watched a video and felt my greatest emotion was helplessness. As I heard bystanders pleading for mercy for over nine minutes asking for someone to help. And they could do nothing because of their pain. That hurt is sourced in real pain that must be grieved. Romans 12 says this, verses 9 through 16 talking about what we should do. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in uh, tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Weep with those who weep. That's what life is called to, the Christian life we are called to live. So, what do we do? Well, Jesus showed us the way. We grieve, 
And he taught us that he came to serve, he came to love, that he was a friend to sinners, and he opposed the proud. You know, the religious elite of Jesus' day missed the Messiah because they expected God to use political authority to accomplish his purposes. And I'm fearful that many Christians in our nation today miss the way of Jesus because we've once again believed that God can only accomplish his plans if the right political party is in charge. If God does things the way we would want him to be done, this is the heinousness of pride that we know better. We must grieve and then we must kill our pride and humble ourselves before God. Only then can we begin to build unity. See, unity is not uniformity. Unity is rooted in humility. Unity is rooted in that truth that we already spoke about from Philippians. I consider you greater than myself. I don't get you, and I bet you don't get me. I'm not willing to divide over that because I consider you more valuable than I consider my way. I know I'm a sinner. I know you're a sinner. Very different people. It was the same spilt blood of Jesus that redeemed us both. Unity. It was Jesus who bled and died for you and me. When we humble ourselves, after we grieve, then we see the way of Jesus. Look at Philippians 2. Again, thinking of humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is what always precedes healing. We know we want healing. We are praying. On Thursday, we prayed for healing in our nation. Think about the last argument that you had with your spouse. If you didn't know the way out of that, let me just give you some coaching on that. This is just a little side marriage conference. The one who humbles themselves and says, I'm sorry, is where healing will come. When when one of you humbles themselves, acknowledges that there's a problem, and says, I'm sorry. Notice it wasn't humbles themselves, explains why they were right, then kind of does a little more humbling. No, it's humbles themselves and says, I'm sorry. Now think of your kids. When one of your kids wrongs one of the other, what what do we do as parents? We as parents demand, humble themselves. Tell them you're sorry. Again, we need another sermon series on the hard part of parenting, of not creating kids that know how to say I'm sorry without ever believing it and just continuing to have proud hearts. Some of us have learned that we can do that. Again, another topic for another day. But no, if we're going to experience and see healing in our nation, we must have humility. Humility will always precede healing. So often, we have quoted 2 Chronicles 7.14, which was spoken about Israel to Israel, but we can, in some senses, apply that truth to our families, our churches, even our nation. And what did God say to the people of Israel? If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, humility, then I will heal their land. As long as we walk around with pride saying there is no sin, there is no issue, I refuse to grieve it, I will not be brokenhearted over the issues that I see, we will not find healing. Humility leads to prayer. Prayer leads to repentance. And repentance leads to restoration, healing. It was Christ's humility 
on the cross that led you and I to being made alive in him. By his stripes, we were healed. That's the good news of the gospel. So we know deep in our souls that it was Christ's humility that preceded our healing. Why then, when it comes to the sin of racism, are we so unwilling to humble ourselves, to pray for it to end, to repent and be healed? So, as we close, let us acknowledge the sin of racism. Let's grieve that sin where it exists in our own hearts and where we see it existing in the world. Let us mourn with our black brothers and sisters before we rush off to try and do something else. Let us sit in the place of mourning and cry about the state of our land. And then let us humble ourselves before God. Humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself for us and let him bring healing. Let us be a people who are unified by our grief and our humility over the reality of racism in our nation. And let us plead with God to heal us. The gospel is our only hope, friends. People transformed by the power of Christ. The gospel redeems us and it makes us new. And it's the hope of that gospel that gives us confidence that we will be forgiven, we will be made new, we will be healed. And as we do that individually, then as families, as a church, and then as a nation, we will see healing come. I close with these words, humble words from Pastor Tony Evans. Don't try to change others if God can't even change your heart. Unity starts with you. Unity starts with transformed hearts. And God can transform. I am living proof of that. You are proof of that if you are alive in Christ today. He's already made you new. Holy Spirit, come and make our nation new. Father, we love you. We humble ourselves before you. We ask for your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts first, then mobilize us to be the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 10.30 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.